Hi, Curvies. Liz Bashir is here joined by my co-hosts, Rachel Breyers and Mary Scott Hunter. And I've been spending a lot of time for, for my, my quote unquote real job. I've been spending a lot of time watching the confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And the last thing I want to do is make this episode slip into the political. I think we all get quite enough of that in our everyday lives. Thank you very much. But what I want to talk about is something I've noticed she and other people in very high profile positions have mastered. She is one of the most self-possessed, even-keeled people I've ever seen under such heavy fire. You know, I, there there are a couple of different ways that I notice that my reaction to heavy pressure differs from her. One being, I know I have the habit of getting so into the smiles and nods of engaging with the person I'm interacting with that sometimes those emotions flare up in my face, in my body language, before I even register what I'm feeling. So today I want to talk to you about the ways you, Mary Scott and Rachel, and body language experts and executive coaches say we can control our emotional responses when we are under fire, even when under heavy scrutiny, to keep our best feet forward. She really is impressive. Whatever your politics are, not we're not here to have a political discussion, but her demeanor, her presentation, the uh, it's impressive. It absolutely is. Now, I can think of a bunch of examples of times that I have lost my cool in an inopportune moment, but now is not my turn. Mary Scott, tell us about a time. (laughs) Why do I get the first one? (laughs) Well, um, I mean, look, we all can think of times when we've lost our cool We've lost our temper. We've lost, we've said the wrong thing. And, and I don't think it's just losing your cool because you get angry or mad. I mean, the if, if we're thinking about the Amy, Amy Coney Barrett hearing or, you know, those kinds of hearings that, that go on on, you know, on the on the news stations, you know, they do they are designed to get someone's temper flared up and get them to say something that, you know, is, um, you know, I guess newsworthy. But really, it's it's more than just that. It's more than losing your temper. It's saying something you don't mean it's speaking when it would be more when it, it you know it probably isn't necessary you know and it, it wasn't really a you didn't add anything to the conversation by whatever it was you said I mean I and and look it happens all the time um you know it happens all the time in your your daily personal life you know things that you talk about with your friends your spouse your your children you know at work I, I definitely think that I think of those high level meetings with managers, with executives when, you know, it, it, you're on, you know, you're really on and it's and it and it and it you need you feel like you need to add something because it's a group setting and not I don't guess one comes to mind. But what comes to mind for me is that I have a rule and I think I've said it before that I always add something. But I always, but the something really has to be a value. And if I don't have anything to add, I really shouldn't. But that's my inclination always. Say something. Don't be, don't be silent. You're not there to be silent. You have something to add. So my rule is to add something. But every now and then, I've let that general rule get ahead of the situation that should be the exception. And I shouldn't say every now and then. It, it just happens. And I say something that I think... That didn't add anything to the conversation. It was a total waste of everybody's time, and it was just me blowing hot air. And see, that's just a, a pull for me. And I, and then you feel silly, and then you think you've, you know. So I, 
you know, have I lost my cool? Um, I haven't lost my cool a lot, but I definitely have um, added things that I think were gratuitous. And the way that I handle it is to try to, you know, we we talked in our last episode about negative self-talk. So don't beat yourself up when you lose your cool or say something you shouldn't. But I think you, you got to acknowledge, hey, I didn't handle that very well. I mean, that's, that's actually in a way positive. You know, don't say, I'm so stupid. I'm so, you know, I'm so, you know, I have no discipline. You know, I don't ever know what to say. You know, don't, that is, that is categorical and that is negative. But to say to yourself, hmm, I really didn't need to say that. You know, that, that's in a way positive because it's specific and you can figure out what motivated that. Were you tired? Um, were you feeling like you needed to say something because there's somebody in the room you feel competitive with? Um, is there somebody in the room that you that that makes you feel um, I don't know vulnerable or you know it, there's a million things. But if you can be specific about it, if you can handle it by really examining why you said that thing, then you have an opportunity to do better the next time. Liz, you said something interesting that that I'd like to leapfrog off of, and that's that sometimes your reaction comes out before your brain can catch up and have the self-control. And I think one funny thing is that body language experts say that even when someone is is very self-controlled, most of us do have these micro facial expressions that we can't hide and can't control in the first few seconds when we have a strong emotion like surprise, anger, disgust, joy, or, or pleasure. Like, have you ever had the experience of telling someone something bad that happened to you, like some bad news, and for a few seconds, you can see their eyes actually gleam? And maybe they even smile a little bit because on some level, they're sort of happy that you got the bad news, but then their self-control kicks in and they appropriately adjust their face into a sad face and say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I think reading reading microfacial expressions from the primitive parts of our brain before someone's more developed thinking brain has time to kick in is really, really humorous to me and humorous when I do it because I know I do it too. So like, I'd say I have a pretty good poker face and general ability to to hold my cool, but I know I've let those split second microfacial expressions of anger or, or annoyance slip out that are probably pretty funny to the other person if they happen to notice them as well. As far as bigger losing my cool moments, I can definitely think of a couple that I'm not proud of and a couple where I am kind of proud because the situation warranted it. And I would have not been proud had I not lost my cool. The one in that second category that comes to mind where I got extremely upset and outwardly showed that was sometime in the past year, I had to take my kids to a new dentist we had been referred to for some dental work. And I won't go into everything, but from y'all from start to finish, it was the worst experience with a medical professional I have ever had. And I've had five kids, so I've had a lot of medical professional (laughs) circumstances. Um, But you know, it was made worse because it involved really reckless and super rude behavior with my two youngest children who didn't understand what was going on and were brought to tears and were upset. It was one of those circumstances you find yourself in, in which you think, have I entered the twilight zone? Like, what is going on here? And I was calm and collected until I just wasn't. And I told them in hearing of the waiting room and whoever else that we had never been treated 
so strangely and so terribly and that we were leaving. And that's exactly what we did. And y'all, I was so upset by the seeming injustice of the situation, just not understanding why when anyone would act that way, that it really shook me to my core. So anyway, and my blood pressure was up for hours after that. I was just so upset. Oh, for sure. I, so there are two things, two examples that I have. One happened to me the other day. I was, I was in a, a Barnes and Noble parking lot and I walked back out to the car and there was a girl who had just banged her door into the side of my car and I saw her do it. And I said, Hey, that's not cool, man. And she said, Oh, I didn't do that. I was like, I just saw you do that. <laughs> and I, I lost my temper at her. And I was like, well, that didn't help anything. And I, I haven't talked to somebody like that in a really long time. And, and similarly to you, Rachel, my blood pressure was high for a while. But the thing that I see happening to me more often than that kind of blow up is that I am a verbal processor. And so often I am thinking th- through my reaction to something by verbally processing that that reaction and so sometimes that can come across as rude or heated or like I am losing my cool when really all I'm saying is all, all I'm trying to do is speak it out loud so I can kind of see it and hear it in front of me and so I can process it and make sense of it but that comes across as not great sometimes <laughs> Sometimes, but I, I love the one thing you said about how so much of this is happening you know, in our brains without us realizing it at first. And so I, I found some interesting neuroscience in an, in an article by Inc.com that says one of the things that you can do to remain calm under pressure is develop the skill of understanding the biochemistry of your brain that often it is a fight or flight response that we have to take into account and just by labeling it and saying, oh, I'm having a um, adrenaline response to this right now, but it's not appropriate to fight or run away in a business <laughs> in a business um, scenario. And that these are hormones that my brain are, is, are processing right now, but I can make the decision to tell my brain, this is not a real threat to life and limb. Uh, another thing they they recommend is labeling the emotions to interrupt the feedback loop of I have to respond to this in a heightened way. Um, if you under now that it's understood that you can reduce the fight or flight signals from your amygdala, if you assign label, labels and names to those emotions, you can reflect on them and assist yourself in calming the amygdala. In an episode we did a couple months ago with Laura King Taylor, she talked very, very specifically about our pal Amy and how we can work uh, with and against her to to control our responses. Um, Another more physical thing we can do is to slow our breathing. And uh, in last week's episode with Angie, she reminded us just how important that that taking a time to breathe and kind of reset our physiological response to our environment is so, so important. Another thing um, that, you know, after you label those emotions, oh, I'm having this emotional response, relabel it so that you can process it and understand it. So this this, um, article gives examples of turn fear into anticipation, frustration into desire for a better state, Worry, relabel it to concern, 
Dread relabeled caution. Flustered is excited. Alarmed is curious. And pressured is, I don't get this one, but courted. Um, courted. <laughs> and so it, it says, when you relabel your emotions, you are using controllable parts of your brain to convince your amygdala that this is, a, this is not a fight or flight situation, but instead a stay aware and watchful situation or even a sit back and enjoy situation. So a big thing I think is, is listening to understand first. So when you get that external stimulus of what might feel like an attack, you're, you're, you're seeking to understand it, then react to it. You know, Rachel, you and Mary Scott came over to, um, to my house a couple of weeks ago and we had a little business meeting. And after you left, my husband told me, Rachel is the most engaged listener I've ever met. And I do think this is a key, a key piece of, of controlling our reactions to things is really listening, not just to respond, but to understand. So teach me your ways. Do you have any tips for us on how to be an engaged listener? Oh my goodness. That that makes my day. That is so nice. Well, it helps that he and you are both very interesting to listen to. So I can't take credit for any effort there. You guys are engaging, but I guess if I have advice for being an engaged listener, some of the things that have helped me is to try and really key in on what is being said. You know, we do, obviously, with COVID and just all of all of the situations that we're all in, we all do a lot of video conferencing. And I've noticed that sometimes when I know that I really need to listen, I have to actually turn my camera off so I won't be distracted by seeing myself in the corner there, which can be a little bit disorienting, right? Oh, like, I can't. It's like, oh, what is my hair doing right, over here? Right. So, oh, no. so I really, you know, there, but so there's things that it, and, and, you know, I think in normal conversations, obviously, we're not looking at ourselves in a mirror, but in normal conversations, there's other things that we can get distracted by, nonverbals or just you know, other environmental distractions. So I think minimizing distractions and just trying to be really present helps me. Also, I started a practice some years ago, and this was when I was kind of leading mastermind groups that helped me as the group facilitator to just stop and think about how I could help draw people out in the group. But I think this works in individual conversations as well. And I called that plus one cue, meaning plus one question, And basically, the idea was just, if someone shared, and this required me to be listening, if someone shared something or if someone was talking in a conversation, to think of at least one additional follow-up question based on what they had just shared to just get them to go a bit further. And I think people seem to really like that because sometimes when folks share, they don't say everything they want to say because they're not sure anyone is interested. They're trying to gauge how are they coming across? Um, but if their conversational partner, you know, jumps in or just moves on, that confirms that that feeling and they don't get to finish their thought. So one way to help someone just feel listened to and valued, and it's something we can just practice um, in any of our conversations, is just to do that. Be listening for at least one thing that you can ask one question as a follow-up. Have you ever invested in professional development training for yourself or your team and realized it was a waste of time and money because the material wasn't helpful or the presenter may have been nice enough, but just wasn't a credible guide to get you to the next level? Don't waste money on training that doesn't make an impact. Higher Echelon Incorporated is an organizational performance consulting firm based in Huntsville 
that delivers world-class, impactful, evidence-based leadership training, executive coaching programs, and applied high-performance consulting that helps get clients real results. One sales team came to Higher Echelon because they were really struggling to meet their goals. They went through Higher Echelon's training and, get this, met their sales quota for the first time in 14 years. Higher Echelon signature programs are developed and delivered by PhD and ICF certified coaches and experts with decades of experience leading at the highest levels. What could your team do if they knew the secrets from psychology that could help them perform better and feel more life satisfaction? Go to higherechelon.com to learn more or send us a note here at Bell Curve. Go higher and achieve more with our sponsor, Higher Echelon. Another another interesting and helpful thing I found was a, a TED Talk by, and I'm, I'm going to butcher this name, but uh, it's by educator Pen Pen Chin, explains why pressure, pressure causes us to panic and how we can conquer it. Now, I'm going to, I want to link that, uh, the TED Ed Talk in the show notes so you can watch it yourself because it was really fascinating. Um, but here are the highlights. One of the main things I say is to choose where you place your attention. That performance suffers when the mind is preoccupied with worries, doubts, or fears instead of focusing its attention on performing the task at hand. It says the reason for this is deceptively simple. When you're too busy focusing on our panic thoughts, then we can't concentrate on the more important things like the speech you've memorized. Um, We excel when we're able to choose where we place our attention or where we don't place our attention. A a lot of this is getting in our own way. Uh, Tasks we do unconsciously seem to be the most vulnerable to this kind of choking, Chen says. So things that we think are, oh, I've got this. No, I don't don't have to remind myself to breathe, even though we we all just learned that apparently we do every once in a while. Um, For example, one study looked at the performance of competitive golfers for whom putting is a skill they perform so regularly that they don't have to think about doing it. How many times have you seen a basketball player whose one job at the is is to be able to get the basketball into the hoop and they have a uh, free throw and they can't make it i mean Shaq was notorious for that back in the day (laughs) it's like everybody knows he's bad at it why doesn't he get better at it but the study found that when told to consider the detailed mechanics of their putting stroke the golfers performed worse than when they were just simply instructed to hit the ball accurately. So Chen says the logic that goes that the logic goes that once a skill becomes automatic, thinking about its precise mechanics interferes with your ability to do it. Um, then there are three ways they they recommend to keep their your cool under pressure and you know feeling nervous before a big event whether you're giving a big presentation or you're about to if you're a lawyer and you're about to try a case or if you're um I don't know, any other kind of, any other big event where you're going to be on the hot seat is to um, prepare yourself. So you're you're not destined to forget the words of your speech or to embarrass yourself, but you do need to learn to be with discomfort. It says that if you know you have a high stakes event coming up, one of the best things you can do is lean into difficulty instead of pulling away from it. One way you can do this is by becoming familiar with feeling pressure and learning to work through it. Rather than practicing on your own for a big presentation to coworkers, try out your speech in in front of a couple of friends. 
Do you have to write a qualifying examination in under an hour? Instead of studying cue cards, time yourself answering questions. I love this next tip, and it's something I want to get better at incorporating in my life, is to establish a pre-performance routine, whether that is praying, taking a few deep breaths, eating or drinking the same things that you know are not going to upset your stomach, just a a routine that gets you into a performance attitude um, so you know that you're not going to get there and have unexpected physiological responses to your situation. And then the third one that they recommend is to use mindful mindfulness to focus your attention, to avoid overanalyzing your situation and try to shift your attention away from your worries and toward the task at hand. So on the topic of those, those mindfulness routines, those things that we can do before we're going to be on the hot seat to get in the mind space to be successful there. Do either of you have a mantra or a routine or something you tell yourself to stay centered when you know you're going to be under heavy pressure? Oh, yes. I mean, let's see. Do you want the aspirational one or do you want the one that is like, the, this is how I'm going to be good enough today? Let's go with both. <laughs> Let's go. Both and. Oh, okay. So um, this is a Mary Scott little secret. I don't talk about this a whole lot because maybe somebody out there will think it's silly, but it works. I, I can visualize myself trying the perfect case. I can visualize that. I can go through every step of that in my mind from the moment I walk through the courtroom into the into the courtroom to putting my stuff down to the opening argument, the direct questions, the you know listening to the other side and when they put on their case, the closing argument, you know I can I can I can go through every bit of that in my mind and picture myself doing it perfectly, perfectly. In our last episode, we interviewed Dr. Angie Pfeiffer and. Angie didn't mention this on the air, but off the air, we were talking about some of the things that she does for hobbies, and she is a triathlete, and um, I've done a triathlon, and before I did that triathlon, I pictured myself doing every single part of that triathlon perfectly, you know, how I transitioned from the run to the bike, you know, how I positioned myself in the water when I was doing the swim to get good nose position. You know, was I going to swim all of it freestyle or some of it freestyle with, the, with um, breaststroke for breaks? I mean, so I, I work through the things that I really want to do, um, boardroom situations, presentations, demonstrations. I work through those things and I don't think about the mistakes. I think about how I would do it perfectly. Does it ever come out like that? No, it doesn't. But I know I can do it because I've worked through it in my mind. I know I can put it on perfectly. You know, if everything, if the stars all aligned, I know also realistically that there's going to be mistakes and things aren't going to happen just as they're supposed to. But I strongly believe you should be able to picture your perfect day. Picture your perfect day. And if you can picture your perfect day, your perfect day could happen. So that's the aspirational thing I do. <laughs> In our last episode, I asked our guest uh, about how to, how to be good enough because I, as we talked about uh, in that episode with Angie, sometimes good enough is good enough and you don't have to be perfect all the time. 
in fact, it's counterproductive to be try to be perfect all the time because then you're not going to be really good at the things you really need to be good at. So every single person, every everywhere who's ever been successful is going to have good days and bad days. And on a bad day, on a day you didn't sleep well the night before, on a day when you're, you've got a lot on your mind because something's going on with you, your kids, your parents, your husband, your whatever, you, you, you really have to find a way to get a win that day and, and how to get through the day and have a, good, have a good day. And for that, you really, I, not really, I shouldn't tell you what to do, but what Mary Scott does is I make a very detailed list in the morning. I'm a list maker, period. But in the morning, I, I put myself on a schedule. And it's it, sometimes I, it's down to the minute. And I tell myself when I'm going to do things. And then I just do them. I just do them. And maybe I don't do them very well. Maybe I don't do them as good as I could have. Maybe I don't do them with the attitude that they should have. But I do them because my list that I made that morning when my mind was fresh, as fresh as it was going to be that whole day, told me that I should be doing X at 2.30 in the afternoon. (laughs) So what I feel like doing at 2.30 in the afternoon was crawling under the covers. But what I, in fact, did at 2.30 in the afternoon was start returning those phone calls because that's what I said I was going to do. So that's, those are my two tips, mantras, whatever you want to call them for staying centered and doing something, you know, I guess one aspirational, but, but one sometimes, (laughs) sometimes just good enough is good enough. And um, that's all you can do. I love your, your thoughts about visualization. I agree that when you can just stop and take the time to do that, it, it carves out, I think, a successful path that it kind of like we mentioned last week that science is proving out isn't just woo woo. Oh, you should visualize it's no there. That has a true effect. And so I think when we know that um, being more intentional about putting those practices in is is really important. I think for me, very, very important is to first thing in the morning, just return to some of those principles that I've known all my life, you know, spend some time in prayer, spend some time in meditative prayer. And something I've added this year is I wrote out um, a front and back page of personal affirmations that I can go and I read them every morning. It's just part of the ritual now to go back through and and remind myself of of the positives. You know, think of, you know, I, I am good at my job. It's who I know myself to be, but in those moments of doubt, you can start to attack yourself and find evidence and proof that you aren't those things. So I think starting the day with those mantras, and some of them might be Bible verses, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or, you know, what, whatever quotes, um, I find that to be very, very helpful. You know, I think um, Mary Scott first really turned me on to this quote from the great coach, <laughs> Nick Saban. About- Roll <laughs> about (laughs) controlling what you can control and doing your job in the moment. Um, So this is, this is the full quote kind of more in context that don't think about winning the SEC championship. Don't think about the national championship. Think about what you needed to do in this drill on this play in this moment. That's the process. Let's think about what we can do today. The task at hand. And there he has, I I think he has, um, you know, a little bit of a control freak, but there's something we can, we can learn from him about controlling what we can control so that we can then 
divert our, our mental energy to, to being able to figure out the problems as they come to us. And I think that's a little bit of what you're saying there, Rachel, is that there are baseline things that we can do to control our, our general well-being. That, so when you've got that baseline solid, the, you know, the extraneous stuff is extraneous and you have the, the mental energy and the capacity to take those on. There's a, another quote um, that when Mary Scott and I were talking about this subject the other day that she uh, mentioned to me from Ernest Hemingway, that courage is grace under fire. And I really love that, that thought of courage is just not, is not just doing big, bold, brave things. It can often just look like having the wherewithal to perform with grace under fire. Keeping it together when, when you could fall apart. And, and sometimes it's an Amy Coney Barrett situation where you're sitting in front of, um, you know, an audience or a, you know, a, when you're sitting in front of all the senators answering questions and it's difficult and it's hard. Or sometimes it can be, you know, being challenged with something with your children that nobody else is watching, just you, but you, you handle it with grace. Hemingway would always put his characters into situations where they were called upon to have grace under pressure. That was, that was something he loved to see what his characters would do, his fictional characters would do. And I think it's interesting what people do. And I think to the extent that, yeah, you know, people are going to disagree with what you say. People are going to disagree with your, you know, your 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 choices, you know, as they will in 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 Barrett's situation. But nobody has criticized her for her demeanor, and I think we can all control our demeanor. Um, it's a really admirable thing, and it's a it's a thing that if you can if you can find some tricks, whether it's lists, whether it's um, whether it's your Bible study, whether it's your centering, whether it's your breath, whether it's picturing your perfect day. But if you can find your way, some ways to achieve what, what Hemingway really always was examining in all his fictional characters, how to achieve grace under pressure, I, I think it's worth trying to get there. Well, I'll bring up one of Mary Scott's mantras that she shared when she said she sometimes tells herself like a Mary Poppins stop slathering about <laughs> that, that has come to mind I've, I've told myself that a couple of times like stop slathering about like get yourself together man like just you're fine the way my dad used to put it was knock it off <laughs> just knock it off just knock, knock it, it off. off middle slap <laughs> absolutely well, are there any other resources that either of you recommend for learning how to better exhibit that grace under fire i like to read books and watch movies tv shows that have strong female characters strong female protagonist um for me, that is a more enjoyable and interesting way to learn about grace under pressure. I mean, that's rampant in, in literature. Ramp, I mean, that's the whole point is to put characters in situations where they have to figure out how to behave. They have to, they have to uh, you know, have the hero moment or the heroine moment. So for me, the most enjoyable way to do that is through film and through fiction. Yeah, and it's interesting because I... I like when those stories come through more so on in nonfiction. So I think podcasts that interview people, I mean, we're, we're a podcast where we interview people, but I've found recently that 
I think listening to people who I would certainly look up to, if I read their resumes on a page, I would just be like, wow. But to hear them be authentic, and I, I'm just so grateful. We've talked about Brene Brown a bunch. You know, there, there, there really is a movement for people to be authentic. And I think that's been in the past three, four, five years, maybe longer, where somebody talks about, you know what? I know I knocked that out of the park, but here's what was going on internally. And I just appreciate when authors and interview guests will will go into those details. It helps me so much. And, and then just books as well that I think detail steps that you can take mentally or physically. I always find those very compelling. I think you and I are on the kind of the same wavelength there, Rachel. I've, that something that's been very helpful for me is is identifying some of those role models who, oh wow, I really admire the way that that person reacted in that situation. I really admire that person's work ethic, or I admire that person's routine, or whatever. And then trying to adopt some of those same mentalities and approaches into my own life as well. I, that. That kind of good example is something that I am always seeking. Um, but thank you so much to both of you ladies for this wonderful conversation on Grace Under Pressure today. You can learn more about uh, Bell Curve by listening to some of our previous episodes that we've mentioned in this episode. And we've got what almost 60 of them now that you can feel free to go back and listen to. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Bell Curve Pod and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform because that really, really helps us get some of this information in front of other people who might benefit from it as well. Thank you for joining us today and we hope you have a wonderful week. We will see you next time.